This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Welcome to Light the Fuse, the official Mission Impossible podcast. Charles, do you have your pith helmet on? Do you have your your gloves? Because we're digging up another buried treasure from <laughs> the Light the Fuse past. Yes, we are, and uh, yeah, we're we're so excited to share another one of our favorite episodes. I still remember so distinctly this interview talking to David Kep, uh, who is just a legend. I mean, this was recorded back in October of 2020. And I mean, he's one of the most successful screenwriters of all time. He's had a great directing career as well. I mean, like, what can you say about David Kep, Drew? Well, I think he is actually historically the most successful screenwriter. We don't want to get an angry email from him because he will really call us on our. <laughs> I believe it. I believe it. I think uh, that makes sense. I mean, Jurassic yes. Park. I mean, there's a lot. Spider Man. Spider Man. I mean, yeah. he's, he's the, the, the Sam Raimi Spider Man. Like, I mean, that that was such a huge deal. I mean, he's done so many amazing movies and and several De Palma movies. Yeah, and we talked to him, I believe, on the occasion of a short story that he had put out on Amazon, I want to say, uh, that is absolutely amazing. I love this short story so much. Uh, Yard work. Yard work. Yes. It was amazing. I think it was an audio book, right? Yes, it was an audio book. And it was read by uh, Kevin Bacon, right? Yeah, I think so. And and he also had a movie around the same time, You Should Have Left. Yes. And also, I want to just encourage people to read his, I think he had two novels come out or there was one novel that was out and one that had come out a couple of years later uh, that are both amazing. One is called Cold Storage. The other one is Aurora Cold Storage. Finished principal photography before the strikes. So that'll be coming out soon. And Aurora is becoming a movie from Catherine Bigelow for Netflix uh, that sounds amazing. I mean, the book was absolutely incredible. So uh, a multifaceted talent a extremely nice guy, and he was so generous with his time and his stories, and um, yeah, we love him. I mean, what a career. It's amazing, the things that he's written, and, and the movies he's directed as well. I mean, Trigger Effect, I'm such a big fan of, and uh, yeah, so so many, just so many great stories, and you'll hear. He does a, a killer Brian De Palma impression as well. Yes, our favorite, perhaps. And I also want to remind people that... You can watch all six original Mission Impossible movies on Paramount Plus and that you can buy Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning on your favorite digital provider as well as on DVD, Blu-ray, and 4K Ultra HD disc. So get on that. And Charles, let's get on in to David Kep. Well, usually we we you know start off uh, asking, were you a fan of the Mission Impossible show before you signed on for the project? Yes, with the exception of Martin Landau. Ooh, I'm just no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> uh, he was uh, he. I remember he was, he was complaining about the movie years ago, so I thought I'd start out of the gate 
give a shot at Mark. <laughs> um, Were you involved at all at one point when uh, – because there was rumor that the TV cast was going to be a part of the movie at some point? I don't think that was ever going to happen. Yeah. Um, Brian is not – actually, he is a great sentimentalist, but he's not a sentimentalist in that way. Right. Um, and I don't – you know, you can always kind of – those don't usually work. Right. You know? I mean, they work in a sort of, hey, look, it's those people from the TV show, but not, you know, not in a story of the movie way. Uh, so, um, no, I was to answer your question growing up. Uh, yeah, I loved the show. I watched it. I think it was on um, I was born in 63. Uh, so I would have been watching it in after school reruns, probably. Okay. Um, and I loved it. And I actually loved Rollin Hand and his many disguises. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I thought it was uh, I thought it was a, a great show. It was really fun. Were you were you were you brought onto the project by De Palma or yes? It, okay. Yes, I had uh, Brian and I had done Carlito's Way uh, together a couple of years prior to that, and uh, we'd gotten along great. And I was about to do I just finished Lost World, I think, and I was about to start. I was going to do Shock Corridor. You remember? You remember the yeah, Sam Fuller Sam movie? Fuller. Yeah. Uh, somebody was going to remake it at Disney. I can't remember the producer. And uh, if there's one thing that seemed perfectly suited, it's 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 Shock Corridor and Disney. And uh, <laughs> I uh, I was I, but I had an idea for you know a journalist and goes in and can't get out and you know I thought it was going to be kind of cool. And I think we were negotiating or talking or somebody was trying to convince somebody to do it. And um, I got a call from Brian. Who said, you know, like a phone, pre cell phones or pre mostly pre cell phones. So I remember calling him back from a restaurant, and I said, "What? What is so urgent?" And he said, "What are you doing?" And I said, "I, I think I'm going to do Shock Corridor at Disney." And I said, "I'm eating." And he said, "No, no, no. What are you doing? What are you writing?" Because I think <laughs> I'm going to write Shock Corridor at Disney. And he said, oh, "Shock Corridor? That's a that's a terrible idea." <laughs> I said, "Brian." Did you call me to berate? I'm eating, you know. And he says, Mission Impossible, Tom Cruise. I have to see you in the morning. <laughs> and uh, the rest was, the rest is history. <laughs> was there any material at that point? Because we've heard that, you know, Sidney Pollack and some other people had been flirting with the idea before. Yeah, they had a, they, uh, there was a, there's several pieces of material. There was a script that Willard Huck and Gloria Katz had written. And then subsequent to that, there was a treatment that uh, Brian had done with Steve Zalian. But uh, Zalian had to go because he either, and I've never asked him directly, either he had to go because he had another commitment or he had to go because he got a whiff of (laughs) what it was going to be like working with Tom and Brian and perhaps uh, a certain lack of freedom that he might have enjoyed. And uh, and so he he left. But... um, but I came in and then Brian and I reworked the treatment because it had been a first draft, but also I had some other ideas and nobody can ever just do somebody else's thing. You got to wreck it. So, so I started, uh, so Brian and I worked through another treatment and then, and then I wrote some scripts. Did you read that original script? Which original one? The, the Huck and, and Yeah. Sure. Yeah, I did. It wasn't the direction that I wanted to go, but it was, a, a but it was, it had a lot of good things in it. Okay. Okay. Did any of it manage to make its way into the movie? Anything from that draft? Uh, I don't believe so. No. Okay. So what was oh, wait, the... his, his his first name? I think he was Ethan in their draft. Okay. Um, 
I think I think he he remained Ethan and uh, Hunt was mine because Hunt seemed like a cool name, but that wasn't the coolest name. I was very happy with Luther Stickle, which is one of my favorite character names that I've made up. That <laughs> and was Ethan, being arranged as character. It's hung around for a long time now. That yeah, name. there's a funny story about that. You want to hear it? Yes, sure. <laughs> yeah, I figured this is the place, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So we were in Prague uh, uh, right before shooting. So we were doing rehearsals. And it was fascinating because Prague had just reopened in the mid-90s, you know, after the fall of communism. And so we were staying. Brian had this room in a hotel that we were all staying in that was where, like, the Politburo must have stayed when they came to town. You know, it it was this gigantic uh, room with um, a huge conference table with a giant map of, of Europe at the end of it. And... It was, I mean, you could just picture, you know, like Brezhnev up at the map, you know, talking about where they wanted to go next. It was, uh, it was a really cool room. So um, anyway, we were rehearsing and we got to the end and the, you know, script had been through its turbulent life and, you know, there's more turbulence to come, but, but it was, it was in a pretty, it was in a good state and everybody was pretty cool at that point and we were ready to start shooting. And we were finishing a rehearsal, and Brian said, "Anybody got anything else?" And uh, Ving Rhames said, "Yeah, I got, I got a, I got a question." We said, "Okay, what's the question?" He said, "How come the black guy got to die?" And we said, <laughs> "Well, you know, a number of people die. Um, it's not, you know, it's not just him." And he said, "Yeah, yeah, but how come the black guy always got to die?" And we were like, oh, okay, Bing, you're right. So, so we kept him alive. And what I, what I think is hilarious about it is seven movies later, Bing's still there. <laughs> he was not only right about the note, but he also, in terms of career longevity, was, was right about uh, staying alive. Yeah. Where was he supposed to die in the script? Do you On the train at the end. It was all very exciting. <laughs> Well, do you want to, you want, should we start talking about the turbulence of this script? Sure. So why, why was it turbulent even before, uh, you told Ving Rams that he got to live? I mean, what was, where was well, it I, at that stage? There was, uh, you know, I mean, there's two very strong personalities at the, no more than two, uh, but the, 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 you know, the two dominant personalities at the center of the movie were Tom and Brian. And, they liked each other very much and they also uh, disagreed a lot. You know, Brian has a really clear viewpoint on things. Brian, you know, he's, 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 he is an auteurist, no question. And Brian gets to be called an auteur because he writes half his own stuff. But even on the stuff he doesn't write, it's an extremely clear point of view. And he's one of the few directors where you can look at a shot and say, oh, it's a Brian De Palma movie. And, and that's rare. And you hire somebody for that. And then you it's very hard for them to just give it up. And Tom, I think, both wanted to respect that and struggle with it because he didn't always agree with the viewpoint. And he had a very clear idea and he was producing the movie and also had a very clear idea about what he thought it should be. So, you know, you just had two brilliant guys who a lot of the time would get along great and were great allies and sometimes wouldn't. I think Tom also felt quite a bit of anxiety about it. It was going to be a great, big, expensive movie. And he was producing the movie, which he was doing with Paul, you know, Wagner for the first time. And so there was a, 
you know, really high degree of personal responsibility for it. And as personally responsible as Tom Cruise feels about every single thing he does and every single person that he meets throughout his entire life, if you could multiply that by a few for this, the first giant movie that he was producing and starring in and creating a franchise from, you know, there's a certain level of attentiveness there. And um, so, and Brian and I had done a thing together and we had a relationship, but we trusted each other. And so there was a dynamic, maybe he felt it was two on one. Now, granted, there was two of us and then there was one of Tom Cruise. So it could have been 50 of us. It wouldn't necessarily have mattered. He's got right. an extremely strong personality and point of view. And then I think what happened is this, the, the, the studio made a sort of uh, Sherry Lansing was running the studio at the time. And she made, I think, what was a, a, a tiny bit of a mistake in terms of working with Tom, which was to say at a certain point, we love the script. We don't want We don't have any notes. And I think that makes a person nervous, especially if you're a person who's used to working on something exhaustively. You know, Brian and I had no intention of stopping, but I think he heard we don't have any notes. And he thought, oh, they're just going to try to jam me into this and get it out because it's a title. You know, it's a big thing. And, and, and so that at that point, then he wanted to work, bring in Bob Town to work on it. And I didn't like that, you know, because I was also young and. And uh, I didn't like anybody touching my stuff. And I didn't realize that perhaps you shouldn't work on $100 million movies if you don't want anybody touching your stuff. <laughs> and so, you know, there was a bit, there was a lot of back and forth at that point. The next several months as Town did his thing and then I'd come back and do more of my thing. And then at some point we're both on the movie, but in different hotels in London, you know, the studios maybe going to shut it down or maybe they're not. There's pages flying everywhere. I was staying up for three days at a time trying to combine things. And it was uh, it was it was sort of chaotic. What was, was it was the, chaotic. It wasn't was sort of chaotic. The, that was leading up to the production. All of that you in separate hotels. Yeah, that was all before cameras ever rolled. Once cameras rolled, it settled down as things tend to. There were still you know last minute rewrites and and things like that, but but there wasn't the sort of it, it, it didn't have that feeling of a little bit of the wild west that it did prior to production. What was the biggest like log jam in terms of what like was there a, a set piece or something that that caused all this to to happen or was it just rewriting the script again and again or what what was the kind of holdup? Just rewriting the script again and again, okay. and I think because it was a it's a because it was a complicated plot, yeah, and we and we all wanted it to be a complicated plot, but you kind of have to all agree on what the complicated plot is and where the, what, how much complication is too much. Okay. And, um, I remember one day we had, there was a, the opening, you know, which is quite extensive and, and jam packed full of exposition and death and reversals and setups. And, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a very complex piece of writing that starts, you know, with a story inside a story that turns out to be a fake. And then these people are all running a thing, but somebody's running a thing on them. And, I remember getting in a, a disagreement with Tom about there was one security guard who had no lines. He had to push a button. And he said, well, who's that guard? And I said, that's the guard who works there. And he said, no, no, no. But who is he really? And I said, no, he really is the guard who works there. And he said, yeah, but wouldn't it be better if he wasn't the guard who works there, but he was actually somebody else. And we find out who it is. And Ethan figures out that that's who it is because of, and I'm like, 
No, it wouldn't be better because Ethan just needs to walk through the door. (laughs) (laughs) You know, and then that would lead to an hour of discussion. Wow. (laughs) He might, I'm sure he doesn't remember, but if he did, he might tell the story in a different way. But, you know, we all have our opinions. What did you think when when the movie came out and people said it was still too complicated? (laughs) (laughs) Brian called me the day after it came out and he said, Dave. There's a one-word buzz on this movie. Incomprehensible. <laughs> I said, no, no, no. It's supposed to be complicated. This is okay. People are going to love it. And, and they didn't. <laughs> well, you have uh, um, this amazing archive you, that you have on your website of, uh, of your old scripts, a lot of scripts, and you have multiple drafts of Mission Impossible, and we had a chance to take a peek at them. So I wanted to just ask a couple questions about how those things, how certain things evolved. I mean, I think maybe the biggest thing is the romance between Ethan and Claire. And, you know, it was more explicit in earlier drafts. Uh, you know, in the, I think in the, the earliest draft you posted on your website, the, the two of them are having an affair right from the beginning. And it's, it's hidden from Phelps and Ethan's deciding whether or not in the opening of the movie, should I, you know, he's, he's trying to grapple with whether or not he wants to reveal that to, to Phelps. And then, and then as the more drafts come in, that gets shaded back. And then to the final shooting script, which is then they, it's clo- very, obviously very close to what ended up in the movie, except for one thing is that they have, they have, uh, they have sex on the train. They make love on the train or it's implied they do in the middle of the movie, like right before the Langley heist, I think is when it happens. So I just wanted to ask you about the evolution of the Claire Ethan romance and what decisions went into why it was scaled back and, and stuff like that. It, it was a little while ago. So I, you know, I don't, I may not remember clearly why I remember that that's how it was originally. I'm not sure. I remember how I lost that fight. Because I liked them having an affair. I liked that they were sleeping together, and I liked that he was morally compromised. And I thought that that was gonna that was gonna be fascinating. And, and you know, having an affair with the wife or girlfriend—I can't remember—I think wife, uh, the wife of your mentor—that's not so good. And uh, <laughs> it gets into some, you know, uh, Arthur Guinevere Lancelot. There, there's some very nice triangly stuff there, and I, I love to write triangles. I think that, you know. Somebody involved maybe didn't want to play that. So I think in the end, the thinking was, no, no, they're not having an affair. But Phelps's treachery and jealousy actually causes the thing to happen that he was most afraid of, which is that they end up together. Right. Which is fine, too. And obviously the movie did well and and, uh, no one was injured during filming. So that's good. (laughs) Um, I liked that he was having an affair. I thought that would have been kind of fun. Did they shoot the scene on the train? Did they shoot that where the, the two of them consummate their romance before the Langley heist? I don't believe so. Okay. Before the Langley heist, uh, in the middle of the movie, you mean? Yeah. It's in on the tra- train. The, the, right. They're on the, yeah, that tra- it's a different train. The train where we first meet Krieger and Luther. Right. And they run down the, the whole scheme of what they're going to do. And then, and then there's a scene in the train there in, in, the, in the shooting script that, that you have on your website that... Uh, that the two of them like have a little conversation after that scene and then they Yeah. You know. I thought the best sequence in that section of the movie that I hope was in the first draft that you read was the rounding up the team sequence. Right. Was that in there where you you know I think that's in your second draft. Yeah, somebody's busted out of a prison in India. Yeah. Uh, there's yeah, there's a there's an extent seven or eight page rounding up the team sequence. Yeah. When after, you know, Ethan's uh, team's all been killed. 
And he's off now on his own and he has to go figure out who's done this and why. But of course, he needs people to help him. So he, you know, every great team movie has a rounding up the team sequence. You know, it's Guns and Navarone. It's well, it's a million of them. So Brian and I had come up with what we thought was fun and funny and adventurous and, and had some good size to it. And it just died in the last minute because of budget. You know, it was right. a very expensive sequence, but it, it made me so sad because I particularly liked the prison break in India. I thought it was a great idea for how to bust somebody out of prison. Right. You go see them, you shoot them with the darts that they don't even know about, so they think they're dead. And then the prison takes them up to the roof to cremate them and you rescue them with a helicopter. It's great because a guy wakes up in a coffin and, you know, he's sliding toward flames. That's, um, <laughs> that seemed like a lot of fun to me. We'll be back with more from David Kep after the break. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Check out our new NBA show, Beyond the Arc, part of the CBS Sports Podcast Network, where you can find me, John Gonzalez, NBA insider Bill Ryder, and Ashley Nicole Moss, five days a week talking all things NBA. Whether you're looking for insightful discussions, upbeat commentary, breaking news, interviews, or coverage of all the biggest stories in the NBA, our new show is the place to be five days a week. Download and follow Beyond the Arc on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you get your favorite podcasts. There was also another team member, right? Yes. Who was it? Paul Mitnick. I want to say Mitnick. Oh, right. The computer guy. Yeah. Yeah. He became shuffling of sort of combined names. With, with Luther Stickle. Yeah. 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 As Spider, as that one of those Spider-Man movies came to call him the guy in the chair. Um, <laughs> yes. I like to think that we had an early guy in the chair in Luther. <laughs> yes. Um, there's always a guy in the chair. Yeah, it was it was a shame we lost the, the that sequence. Um, imagine how well the movie would have done if we'd had it. <laughs> that well, actually, we we did a whole episode about. Uh, I looked at the the archives. Ronald Moore has archives of of his work, and they and he had your that that set piece in his archives for MI two, and because I think they were trying to carry it over and use that set piece in the second movie, which it didn't oh, end up happening. Nice. But yeah, it's doomed you know, to get cut. <laughs> doomed to get cut. <laughs> There's stuff like that in your career. I've, I have a line of dialogue that I've put into five or six movies. And twice it has even managed to be shot, but was cut both times. <laughs> and I'm, I'm determined to use it. What's and, that? Can you give us the line? Yeah, because I just put it in another script and, you know, God help us all. Here's the line. If anybody can beat me to it, good luck. I'm not sure I admire your tone. That's it. It's a very simple line. I'm not sure I admire your tone. And I just want it to be in a movie. Preferably preferably performed by someone with a British accent. But that's that's, that's all I want. And I can't I can't I can't make it happen. There's another set piece in your first draft that I thought was really cool. And I wanted to know what the origin of this was. Is um, 
when Ethan's going to go meet with Kittredge, which I think would end up being just a phone call when he calls him from the train station in the final movie. So uh, he, he goes to meet him somewhere in person and Claire's like, I don't think you should do it. And when he goes to meet him, he times it with this military wedding uh, coming out at the same time. So all these military people come out wearing hats and then Ethan puts on a military hat and outfit and he fits in with this whole military wedding that's going on outside St. Paul's Cathedral. And yeah. uh, and then uh, and then he's going to go. He's going to go. He's angry at, at Kittredge for for, you know, framing his parents for the drug whatever thing. And then, uh, and then Phelps like shows up in a motorcycle and saves him. And that's, that's how the reveal of Phelps happens in this early draft. So I just wanted to hear about that set piece too. Well, I was, uh, that, that was me trying to use an idea <laughs> that I had in earlier in the draft that didn't work or didn't make it, you know, people in military uniforms are so striking, especially when they're white. And the idea that, uh, you know, how, how dare he go meet him? They'll just see him and he'll be there and there'll be no way for him to get away. But of course, if you, you know, time it with a bunch of people who are going to be dressed exactly like you, imagine the visual. And Brian is very drawn to great visuals and is adept at creating them. Um, I'd had it earlier in the script in the opening sequence. Uh, Ethan was going to be in naval whites. And then when everything turns to shit and he's, you know, the team is killed and he's fleeing through Prague. What had been a perfectly ordinary thing to wear at an embassy reception was now making him stick out like a sore thumb. And I had him in a sea of black clad, you know, European like, you know, nightclubbing type people. And there he is in white. And so it's like the last thing he should be wearing. He's sticking out like a sore thumb. Problem with that was it's, it's, a nice, it's a nice idea for one shot, but it means that it dictates this rather extreme costume for the first 20 minutes of the movie. And, you know, nobody wants that. So at the end that you're talking about was me trying to reuse that idea in a different context. Hmm. Wow. It would also have been cool if you got that white outfit covered in blood. In the yeah, movie. well, yeah, well, sure. <laughs> <laughs> Opening sequence. I wanted to ask about Max, because in early drafts, Max uh, is a man. And then at a certain point... No way, really? I forgot that. And then uh, it was switched to, obviously, Vanessa Redgrave portrayed Max in the final movie. So um, I guess you don't remember that. So maybe this isn't a good I, question. No, it's, a, it's an excellent question. I think that's uh, that has to be Brian just doing some interesting casting. Yeah. Um, I'm sure Max was a man, and it sounds very much like he said, I like Vanessa Redgrave. And we said, let's not change the name. Let's just leave it. It's great. Uh, a lovely surprise. And then I love how flirty she is. I mean, she's such a wonderful actress. But yeah. Uh, you know, that she finds Cruz a very appealing young man. They tried to get her back for multiple uh, install subsequent installments and never closed the deal. So, yeah, yeah, they tried. <laughs> Charles, you look like you're looking at a list of notes. So I do have a lot of notes. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Uh, <laughs> well, I wanted to ask because De Palma recently uh, in an interview talked about this, the, the original six week. Uh, hold up in a hotel room with Steve Zalian. I think he said smoking cigarettes and eating peanuts or something coming up with the story for the, for the, for the, for mission, which then was passed on to you. And then you said you had a story, uh, you know, session with, with De Palma. What was that story session like and how long did it go? And were you eating peanuts and smoking cigarettes? We ate pretzels. Okay. <laughs> and yeah, he smoked a lot of cigarettes. I can't remember if I was smoking at the time or not. I was on and off with smoking in the nineties. Not a good idea, but we ate Snyder's of Hanover sourdough pretzels uh, at a house he'd rented in L.A. and um, worked at a very long table and, uh, you know, went through 
made our outline. But it was fun. I mean, the fun, the most fun. Uh, uh, I asked Brian once, actually, what's your favorite part of the process? And he said, making them up, hmm. which is the most fun. It's when anything's possible. Nobody's fighting with you, except maybe your collaborator. But you're not fighting with budget, weather, schedule, you know, the flu you got, the, you know, the, the, the numerous collaborators you have who might have different ideas about how things should go. There's none of that. There's just the pure, hey, what if, what if he comes down from above, like top copy and the floor lights up like that Michael Jackson video. There's, <laughs> it's just the, it's just that, it's the pure fun of dreaming it up and anything's yeah. still possible. Is that where that sequence came from in the train chase, I'm assuming? Uh, no, in the middle, in the in the breaking into the CIA. No, I mean, like in that in that uh, brainstorming session. Is that where those ideas first were? Yeah, they, they come up. They come up bit by bit. You know, um, the, we knew you kind of the first thing you do is you decide who your people are, who the characters are. Right. And and then you rough out the general storyline and then you go into the. You know, it's nice to leave the specifics of a lot of the scenes slightly vague. You know, their intentions, but you don't want to, you know, you don't want to bear down too hard on it until you're writing it. You want to leave a little room for creation in the moment. But set piece things, I mean, those you really have to carefully sculpt. Right. And they take time uh, before you touch pen. To paper, you have to you have to know exactly what happens in the whole sequence, and those come bit by bit. I remember Brian was watching TV and saw that there was a fire. I don't know if it was at the CIA or if it was at some other important government building, but he saw the fire trucks pulling up, and he thought, "Oh yeah, what do they do if there's a fire? They got to let somebody in. Do they have their own fire department? What if they didn't?" And so that was a way, you know, to get into the building. And then we started thinking about a standalone computer. I think this was before the term air-gapped was common. And what would the defenses be? And uh, I know I've told this story before, but we had a we had a number of CIA advisors at the time, you know, former agents and such. And we would ask them, well, what are the actual defenses? Tell us, you know, lay it out. No matter how complicated, we can handle it. Tell us what's it, you know, as much as your security clearance will allow. And they'd say, okay, well, we have a bunch of security cameras and there's a guard in a room watching the feeds. We were like, yeah, good. That's, <laughs> that's totally cool. You guys thought of that. Uh, okay. So we threw that. And we were like, all right, their real stuff is very boring. Let's not do that. That's terrible. And then we started having ideas like, let's just make up our own shit. It's not a documentary. And Brian did want him to come down from the ceiling like uh, a top copy of the, you know, the jewel heist. Right. And I did, I, I, I wanted the floor to, like, let's create obstacles. You can't touch the floor. What happens if you do? It lights up and the buzzer goes off. You know, and then uh, there's a temperature sensor, so he better not get too hot. Oh, and if he gets hot, he'll sweat and the sweat will hit the floor. And then throw in another thing, the rat up in the, you know, Brian's, Brian's thing about suspense is always, you, you got to set the suspense hook. And once it's set, you milk it as long as is humanly possible. And uh, so every possible complication you can throw at them, you do and uh, draw it out as long as you can. So it comes bit by bit. And I remember one day I went in and I was not feeling well. And I said, "Ooh, uh, what if she poisons a guy? And then he runs out and barfs. And, you know, 
So she's meeting the guy in the cafeteria, you know, like the, the bit by bit, that stuff comes together. Wow. And the, the sound side of it, like, you know, that they have to be silent. And then this, you know, this is always, I think De Palma refers to it as the silent sequence. Yes. Um, was that, he, I mean, was that from the idea from the start that it would be a whole silent sequence? I don't know if it was right at the start, but it was at some point as we were creating it, Brian, you know, it was the mid nineties and, and, you know, CG had just uh, come on the scene a few years before. And so there were, everything was, you know, there's a lot of giant spectacle uh, at that point. And it was all, it was very loud. And Brian said, I'm so tired of these thunderingly loud movies. He said, nobody does anything with silence anymore. Let's have a thing in the middle of a great big summer movie where it gets, almost silent and see if we can make it work. So, and I think a lot of good ideas come that way as reaction, you know, like right. I'm sick. Of, uh, everything's doing this. Let's try that. Right. Um, so, you know, a lot of, sometimes you embrace uh, what's going on at the moment and try and do your thing with it. And other times you, 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 you know, reject it and try and do the opposite. It was still a great big, you know, popcorn movie set piece, but it, it had some other ideas behind it. How close did the train sequence get to actually being cut from the movie? I guess if Town had gotten his way, it would have not have been there, right? The train sequence at the end. Yeah, yeah, yeah. His his point was uh, was one that I never understood, which was that he said, you know, great movies have their big set pieces in the middle, and the end is about character resolution. And uh, you know, I don't, I, I I disagreed, and I thought. I don't know. The, I, I think they can have. I think they can have both. I think you'd better have a great big exciting sequence in the middle, and you'd better have a great big exciting sequence at the end, um, and you'd better resolve the character stuff at the end too. Right. Um, so I thought of um, I don't know, Bridge on the River Kwai has a rather exciting climactic scene. Right. Uh, <laughs> you know, Guns of Navarone has a second time I referred to that movie, but I just watched it again. You know, so I think you have. To, I think you have to have both. I think you have to have. Uh, you better have something big and exciting to do in the middle, and then you'd better come up with something else at the end. It doesn't have to top it. In fact, it usually is a little more intimate and intense, mm-hmm. but it but it still needs to be big and exciting. Right. And then you got to have your, your big finale cut the next time you worked with Brian De Palma, which we all know about the, uh, the hurricane in Snake Eyes. Went. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, well. That was fun. It didn't work out. People, uh, you know why? You know why? Because not everybody uh, in this day and age is a um, is like a superstitious Catholic who who believes in God and the you know we thought it was the wrath of God wiping out Atlantic City and it all made a lot of sense. Um, but you know, not everybody went to Catholic school, so they're not into that. At least it got to be in the documentary, which is great to see it. At least, yeah, that was pretty cool. Yeah, yeah. So. I mean, how how much were you involved in the post production of, of Mission Impossible? Were you brought in at all, or I completely recut the whole movie. What you see is pretty much my cut. <laughs> Should we get Paul on the phone? Good. Uh, <laughs> I'm just hoping Brian's listening because I paused long enough for him to start screaming. Um, oh, I was the screenwriter, not at all. I was invited to a preview or two, and uh, you know, I I I. I I probably communicated my thoughts. Okay. But I'm not sure anyone <laughs> considered them for a minute. <laughs> yeah. Did you say, uh, did I hear you say earlier that you, um, you were up for three days straight trying to get something done for the end of this with the near the end, right before production? That was right before production. That was in London. There was a period I came back where things were, things were in dispute. 
the taxation to trade through the trade routes, the outlying systems was in dispute. And um, <laughs> they, uh, the, uh, so I, I was, the studio was, was going to shut it down. So they said, they weren't going to shut it down. They said they were going to shut it down. And so two weeks before shooting, there was not a lot of agreement on the script. And, you know, town script was sort of in pieces and, uh, you know, they, they said, what happened to that script we used to like? And they said, you know, Brian said, yeah, what about that? And Tom said, well, we're working on, you know, like there was, there was a lot of, um, it was, it was a bit chaotic. And they, so they said, well, the studio said, all right, you'd better come up with a script that you can give us that we can say, okay, that's the shooting script. And you, you, you'd better do it in a week or we're going to shut you down. And to show you how serious we are about this and your budget troubles, we are all coming over there. So um, they had, because of our extreme budget troubles, the, the, the people, they had probably six people from Paramount took the Concorde uh, over to London and stayed in the Dorchester and charged about a hundred thousand pounds to the movie. Wow. <laughs> I may be exaggerating. I don't think I am. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you know, to, but, but it was a serious problem. So, um, there were a number of, you know, frenzied meetings, quick attempt to smooth bruised egos, namely mine. And uh, say, can, you know, can we put this back together in a way that we all agree on? And can we have it in about three days, uh, Dave? Because, you know, they're, they're all coming and we got to give them some. So I got I had been about to go on vacation uh, with my wife and then baby and uh, my then wife and then baby. So I got a separate where they had come out, too. So I got a separate room in the hotel and I said, I'll see you guys in a few days. And I took everything town had written and everything I'd written. And I went in the room with a, you know, some pens and scene cards and pencils and a computer. And I, uh, I just, uh, I'd sleep for an hour or two at a time. And cause I had to have a script in 72 hours. Wow. And, um, yeah, it was very unpleasant. It was not a, it was not a, not a way I recommend working at all, <laughs> but I, and also I was trying to be cool, you know, like you gotta, I, I was trying to, not just spitefully cut anything I didn't write and put my stuff back because that wouldn't fly. But also, you know, he's Robert Town. I mean, there's great stuff in there. Yeah. I, I think it just, it was not all coming together. So I was trying to be objective about, okay, this is great and works with this. And what I think I can make happen is let's go back into my part here because that really did work. And then, but we'll use that. And, you know, like I, I was trying to be, mature about the whole thing and blend things that I thought deserved to go together, not, not jam them together and tell a coherent story. And thankfully I, I, you know, we came out on the other end of that with something that everybody felt good enough about to start. Yeah. Wow. Well, was there ever any talk of you coming back for the sequel? No. <laughs> oh, wow. You've done your time. <laughs> well, there were, um, did Brian, did, did Brian consider coming turn, back? You can't turn down. Well, you can't turn down an invitation to a party that you haven't been invited to. So, <laughs> <laughs> obviously, I, I, Tom and I got along fine, and we did another movie together some years later. And you know, I've seen him numerous times since. And I think he's great, and I'm grateful for how it all worked out. I think that because there was another director, and the idea was always, no, Brian, I, it was not. I think Tom's idea always was, I'm going to get a different director every time, right, until uh, the last 
you know, few, obviously he's, he's changed that opinion, but early on and, you know, he wanted to try different people. So when a different director comes in, the last thing you want is the old director's writer. I mean, that's right. God, what a drag that would be. <laughs> well, of course, John, the way Brian would have done it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That'd be awful. But then you actually ended up working with Macquarie and Cruz a few years ago. I don't know if we, if they if this is going to send you into uh, therapy or not. But on on the Mummy, um, uh, that's not going to send me into therapy. I oh, got plenty of other stuff. Okay. Um, <laughs> I, I did. I um, yes, I came in for that on, uh, for about four or five weeks, and it was uh, it was tough. There was um, that was a tough job. Yeah, it was a, a tough thing to make work. I mean, I think a lot of people worked really hard and, and, and did their very best to try to make something cool. But, you know, sometimes sometimes they don't work out. Do you ever and get another, like, another one with Tom was uh, sorry, Drew, go ahead. No, I was just wondering if you ever are curious about what they're doing over there or want to return to the franchise or if you, you know. You, I, you know, I'm, I'm not. I see their movies yeah. um, and I and I enjoy them enormously. Um, I'm not I, I don't I, I have a very hard time uh, with sequels. I've only done it. Truly a sequel once, and that was uh, the Lost World, the second Jurassic Park, and it's just very, very hard for me to, you know, to, to go back to something I already did, because I feel like you use, you use your best ideas the first time. Right. And unless it's by its nature given to serial storytelling, you know, I think the Indiana Jones character works because he's, it's, it's like, it's designed like a serial adventure. Right. I think um, I did a couple of those uh, Robert Langdon movies, you know, the, the Tom Hanks character from the Dan Brown books. But those had books already written. But he's also, I always viewed him like a detective. You know, he's like Sherlock Holmes. Th those kind of work, but but there's because they're serial adventures. So I don't view those as sequels. I view them as other chapters. And I guess these two, uh, Mission Impossibles, are yeah, every time you get a mission, it's based on a TV show. So I'm completely wrong in what I'm saying. Um, <laughs> uh, and I guess it just really comes down to not being invited. <laughs> back with more from David Kep after the break. Rise and shine, football fans. Start your day the right way with Morning Footy, a podcast that covers every aspect of the global game, headlines, match previews, analysis, interviews, culture, fashion, and plenty of banter. Join as we track the thrills and spills of Europe's biggest title races, the business end of the Champions League season, a summer packed with international competitions, MLS, NWSL, and much more. Subscribe to Morning Footy. Another Tom Cruise movie was, uh, you know, you've, you've worked with Spielberg a bunch. Uh, War of the Worlds is a movie that I absolutely adore. Uh, was that, how was the process on that movie and working with Tom again? It was, it was so remarkably smooth because it was, well, first of all, that's, that was based on a book, uh, as, as you know. So there's a lot to draw on. But it's also, um, I don't know, it was just all became, it was all very clear from the very beginning, you know, um, they asked me if I wanted to. I said, let me put some ideas together and come in. I put the ideas together. They said, those ideas would be great. I said, all right, let me write it. 
And, and, you know, I wrote it and they read the first draft and said, this really works. So sometimes they come together quickly. Um, right. Sometimes, you know, and, and you can't, I don't know why they just do. I think that a lot of movie, any movie that has a, you know, complex or fraught history, it's usually because people aren't agreeing on the screenplay. And I, I don't think that means that the screenwriter is necessarily doing a, a bad job. It means that people don't agree. And um, War of the Worlds, everybody agreed pretty quickly on the screenplay. Well, what's amazing about your website is that you have a couple of De Palma projects that never got off the ground. Um, do you want to talk about Blackwater or the Howard Hughes movie? And we're, one of them was you were supposed to direct, and the other one he was going to direct, right? Or were these both for you? Yeah. Okay. No, I was going to do Blackwater. Uh, you know, yeah, we had a lot of ideas, um, still do. And the, the one that was really heartbreaking was the Howard Hughes script, because I... I just thought it was, so, I thought it was really good work. I, you know, sorry to toot my own horn, but um, Brian and I worked out the story together. Brian, when he, when Brian engages on an idea, holy, I mean, there's, you know, you cannot keep your inbox empty. He, you know, his <laughs> mind, his mind just takes off and with ideas, 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 ideas. And he started doing research on Howard Hughes because we'd done this movie with Nick Cage and Nick had always wanted to play Hughes. And Brian had a big idea about how you could meld uh, his real story with, you know, the, the, the fraudulent uh, uh, autobiography that Clifford Irving wrote and tell both and have Nick play both parts. It was really audacious as most of Brian's ideas are. And um, I thought that the script, which also came together quickly, it was quite long. It's like 180 pages, but it came together quickly, which is often a really good sign. And um, and then and, and we had it, you know, we were we were ready to go with it. Director star script and then Snake Eyes to make that movie to get. I can't remember who it was. Joe Roth was involved. Uh, was it, was it Disney? Disney in that era? Yeah, it was Disney in that yeah. era. To get a major studio to make that three-hour Howard Hughes movie for not, you know, not a pittance, Snake Eyes would have had to do a couple hundred million dollars, and it didn't. And those are the rules in Hollywood. You make a bunch of money, you get to take a chance that you might lose some money. You don't make a bunch of money, you you may not. (laughs) And, And those are the rules, and we broke the rules, and the movie didn't get made. And then other Howard Hughes and Clifford Irving movies came to be. So I'm afraid, I'm afraid my website is where the only place that script will see, <laughs> see the light. But it's Can quite you, good. If you're interested, uh, take a look. Yeah, yeah, it's amazing. Can you um, can you talk about uh, Panic Room and, and uh, what it was like working with David Fincher? Sure. Panic Room was a script that came together quickly. I, I had an idea. I'd read an article in the newspaper, so this must have been a while ago. Um, I believe I cut it out with a scissors and put it in a file folder back when we did shit like that. And then I rang up the operator and asked her to put my call through. Um, <laughs> get me Fincher, Murray Hill 5, 2391. Uh, the, I had this idea about, they were called safe rooms. And, you know, uh, rich people build these rooms and then hide in them. And I thought, ooh, cool movie idea. And I because I really love a claustrophobic uh, thriller. And so yeah, I, I started yeah, when I get an idea, I sort of park it. And then a year later, I, I, I go work on it. It's got to cook for a little while. 
And I started, I wrote like a 30 page treatment and I thought that's clear to me, that's a movie. So then I went and wrote a script, which only took, you know, like a week or two. Cause there had been, you know, we have a very detailed treatment. Also, it's not that hard. Also, it wasn't terribly long and it was, it was all very contained with minimal characters, um, which is the kind of thing I like. And that went out as a spec and Sony bought it and uh, it started, it, it just came together very quickly. It emerged. Fincher wanted to do it with Nicole Kidman, which is actually how we started shooting. Uh, the first three weeks were with Nicole. And I think there's one shot in the movie that's just, that's still her. There is? Yeah. Somebody was telling me this the other day. What is it? Really? Yeah. I, it's it's like a shot of her in bed or something. But yeah, somebody told me that there's there's one shot still in the movie of Nicole Kidman. Well, and she does a voice cameo too, right? Yeah. Yes, she plays the uh, the, the ex-husband's wife. new yeah. wife. Yeah. Her girlfriend. Anyway, it, and then it almost all fell apart because, uh, you know, we lost our actress. And then it uh, happily came back together uh, with Jody, who was superb. Were all those crazy uh, camera movements built into the script? Did you go, they go into a keyhole or anything? Some were, some weren't. I okay. um, I mean, of course, I'm not going to try to lay claim to David Fincher's visual style or genius. <laughs> However, in the script, you know, like I did script a shot in my first draft that started down, that showed you the whole house. I wanted to have a shot that started upstairs and, or started downstairs and sh- you saw somebody trying to get in. They couldn't get in. Then you went up to this skylight and saw them trying the skylight and they couldn't do that. And then you came down. If I wanted because and you found her in her room and then they we figured out how they came in because I it was important to me that we have, you know, it's clearly a Hitchcockian piece of work. So I wanted lots of moving camera. But I also it was important to lay out the geography of the place. You had to know this is here. That's there. You're going to spend you know, an hour 45 in this house. So you'd better know it. Uh, the movie starts with a tour and the, so I wanted to really lay out who was where and what, cause then you can understand the suspense and, and, and the mechanics of things. And then what was, you know, David is so brilliant and, uh, you know, just ran with it and designed some of the, my favorite shots in the movie are his, are are striking not so much like you know going in a keyhole or through the handle of a coffee pot where you go oh i didn't know we could do that but like a shot the shot where uh jared leto is pulling on the elevator door trying to get in and, and it's a split screen and on the other side of the screen you see yeah. um jody and, and Kristen stewart uh you know sliding down in the elevator and that stuff's great because to me it doesn't look it doesn't look like a manufactured shot it looks like just the angle you'd really want to be in to see best what's going on. Right. Sort of like, you know, some of De Palma's um, anthill shots in uh, Casualties of War. That's the very angle you want to see for the tunnel sequences. Where can we see best? Right. right. Uh, we're running out of time, so we need to. I mean, I, I, are you, you're running out of time, David. I'm assuming you have... Five scripts oh, that are due thing, by seven o'clock tonight. The thing of it is, uh, <laughs> fellas, it's not just that I'm very busy. It's that I'm also very important. <laughs> and I, I, I think if... <laughs> of course, of course. You know, that's really the thing. I know I have I have subordinates. <laughs> I've got to ask <laughs> I've got to ask you about Jurassic Park. We were ten years old when this movie came out. It was very important to our childhoods. Um, what was that like writing that movie and being a part of that phenomenon? I was I was very lucky. I did very good work. I feel I worked hard. Yes. Uh, I worked some weekends. Occasionally, I'd order in. Um, so you know, I, I think I did some really good work. Um, but 
Uh, yeah, come on. I was I was twenty nine, and I was I, I happened to be someone who was on Universal's radar. Casey Silver very generously pointed me out to Stephen. Stephen took a chance on a you know uh, someone new and uh, unproven, and uh, uh, you know I and, and and I had Michael Crichton's genius book. So I, I think I synthesized material beautifully. Thanks. I think I wrote some very funny lines, but I, I think I also uh, just had tremendous good fortune to be in the right place at the right time. And there's also kind of a, a second wind of uh, lost world appreciation. I don't know if you saw Bilga's great piece uh, in New York no. Magazine. I'll, what, did he, what did he say? I'll email it to you, David, but uh, he, he really likes the movie and uh, it seems to have kind of a second wind uh, are you excited about that? Yeah, that's cool. All right. <laughs> um, I thought, well, I, I I thought the movie got a little, when it came out, um, I remember being devastated by uh, some headline in the Los Angeles Times that said, Lost World, the blockbuster no one loves. Ooh. So that's just so mean. What other <laughs> profession? What other profession do they write about you? No one loves him. <laughs> you know? The data analyst people just don't love. <laughs> so mean. But um, also, Jurassic Park was very special and magical. And it came along at this moment. It was a great, it was a genius level idea. And then it came along at this moment when sound was being invented for the movies, you know, right? CG. And, <laughs> and, and it just touched. And Steven was at the absolute peak of his powers. And he showed us a dinosaur that was believable. Right. Like, how do you match? You can't match that. You'll never match that. Right. So so that's what we went darker because we were like, let's not the awe and wonderment. You know, we're never going to get that again. Let's 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 try right. to chew more people in half. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, Michael Crichton has had his share of clashes with some directors over the years. Was he how involved was he during the production and how what was it like working with him? If you did I never met him. I never, never met him. Met him. Oh, I wow. met, adapted two of his novels and I never met him. He um, he was not. Uh, I think that, um, you know, I, he, he wrote a book and then he wrote a version of the script. And I think he was content and he's directed movies before and he knew what that was like. And he also knew he was working with. He'd handed it over to, you know, the premier visualist of uh, our time, particularly with that kind of material. And I think he was happy to just stand back and let it let it let it happen. Yeah, uh, I'm sure he read a couple drafts and gave Stephen some thoughts, but but uh, right. but I, I think you would, when you when you hand your stuff over to Stephen or Brian or you know you, you let it, you let it go, yeah, let them do it. Well, the only reason you're, you've agreed to talk to us today is because you've got an audio book coming out. Um, That's <laughs> not the only reason. <laughs> But I'm a, I'm a, I wonder if you're referring to yard work, an audible original. I think I am. I don't want to. I don't want to give away too much of this book. I I referred to it on Twitter as Pixar's Up meets Scott B. Smith's The Ruins. I don't know. Oh, that, you're that's it. That's yes. Put it on the jack. Put it on the you know when you, my when primary it, influences. Yeah. That's it. Um, but I don't. I don't want to give away too much. Do you want to sort of set this up? What the story uh, is. Yeah, it's a it's a first of all, it's a, it, it's an audible original, which it, it, I'm new to, but I love them because they're this format where you could, when I wrote this story, it was far too long for a short story, far too short for a novel, but it was the right length for the story. 
And so uh, that I was able to find a home for it where they said, sounds good. Uh, and then get Kevin Bacon to read it so beautifully uh, really made me happy because um, I've enjoyed prose writing and in this case, spoken word storytelling. So it's a, it's a, it's a horror story. Uh, I think it has a lot of heart. It's, it's, uh, it's about an, and, and the lead in the story and why I never felt like it should be a movie is because the lead of the, the lead character is 88 years old and it was important that he be 88 years old and uh, go through this arduous physical uh, experience. Uh, the idea of the story is basically your backyard is trying to kill you. And uh, I think that it's, we're all in a pitched uh, battle with nature from the moment we're born and it's a battle we're destined to lose, but we keep fighting it. That's a great summary. How do you, how do you decide like, this is going to be a novel. This is going to be a script. This is going to be an audible original. Well, in this case, the, because I wanted the lead to be as old as possible, I, I felt like it, it was going to be a story, not, not so much a movie. And I didn't, and also I had such a great time writing cold storage, the novel I had that, came out last year, uh, which is uh, available, you know, at Amazon or really any any bookseller uh, of your choice <laughs> in hardcover or now uh, paperback. <laughs> um, you know, because I uh, because I had such a great time writing that book that the New York Times called pure unadulterated entertainment. I. <laughs> I like prose. I really enjoyed it. I wanted to write more prose. So uh, <laughs> so that's what I did. Well, if you have kept up with the Mission Impossible series, we have a we have a couple of very, very important questions to ask you okay. in our waning moments. Um, we would love for you to rank Tom Cruise's hairstyles uh, in the movies. <laughs> um, obviously, you went with a was – was, was the hairstyle in the first one in the script, first of all? <laughs> I did not make reference to his hair. Okay. I, I have to admit. Okay. <laughs> do you have a favorite? Uh, did you are you do you like the shorter cut? Are you more of a longer ghost protocol guy? Where where do you fall? I'm afraid I'm not conversant enough in his hairstyles uh, as I should as I should be. Yeah. Um, you made how many uh, yeah. movies with this guy? And you, I I, I, I I need to. <laughs> that's that's a real gap in my knowledge, and I. I <laughs> hey, to apologize. We'll just defer to the first one. So you guys like these movies. You guys get into the you get into the weeds with these movies. This is the, this, is our, this will be our hundred and twentieth episode. David, Good so. Lord! <laughs> we have talked to, to everyone. Um, right? Yeah. So cool. Yeah. I, I don't remember his hair well enough. Okay, <laughs> that's okay. That's okay. Yeah. All right. The fourth Fine. one. The fourth. The fourth one. Okay. The fourth one. <laughs> okay. Do you remember the movies well enough to rank your favorites? It's hard to top the first of anything. I'm not saying that because I worked on it. They have the advantage. They have the advantage of novelty, which uh, I think is is you know great and exciting. Um, no, I don't want to rank. I'm sorry, I don't want to do that either. <sighs> Pass. Because if I do that, then I'm slagging certain you know writers and directors who may have done good work. And who could hire? So I think I would right. say it's very nice. I think the first one is probably uh, far and away the best one, and all the other ones are tied for last. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I think. Well, you know, McCory has come on here and said that they're still chasing the greatness of the first one. So, That's very generous of them. No, yeah. they're doing a great job with them, and they, you know, they 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 keep getting how they manage to top themselves is is 
is uh, fascinating and, and mysterious to me, but they do. Well, do we have anything else to um, to plug of yours? Your, your new movie, uh, You Should Have Left. You Should Have Left, is you should have left which uh, came out on demand six weeks, eight weeks ago, something like that, and uh, can be rented, a Blumhouse uh, thriller with Kevin Bacon and Amanda Seyfried. Yard Work, my Audible original. Some of my... Um, you know, grooming products uh, that are available yeah. on the website. <laughs> I was going to tell you how much I liked your face mask. Uh, Thank you very much. Yeah. Now that's it. Uh, if you, uh, uh, and the website. if you want more of me, yeah, the website has uh, screenplays on it, davidkep.com. And I'm on Instagram at DG Ooh. Well, uh, thank you so much for accepting this mission. It meant a lot to us. We are so thrilled to have had you on, and we've wanted you on for a long time, so this was a real thrill. Thank you so much for taking the time to do that. Thank guys. Thanks, guys. My pleasure. Yeah. And, um, yeah, uh, I, I, I really enjoyed being here. Yeah, we'll send you it when it, when it's, when it goes up, too, and I'll, I'll send you that Lost World article to make you feel a little bit better. Oh, yeah, I'd love tonight. to see that. Yeah. Thanks. Okay. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks a All lot, right. guys. Talk to you soon. Bye. Yeah. Bye. Thank you. Light the Fuse, the official Mission Impossible podcast, is produced by Charles Hood. That's me, and Drew Taylor. Our supervising producer is Abby Smith. This episode was edited by Luke Burson, with music by Kevin Blumenfeld. The interview is a production of Bravo Echo 11 LLC, and the podcast is a production of Paramount Pictures. All rights are reserved. This message will self-destruct in five seconds.